You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Happy Wednesday. This is a podcast on a mission to expand your perspectives, have you question the status quo, and get you inspired for action for your own career. The podcast is part of OMD Ventures, my platform to create ecosystems so that high performers like yourself are inspired to challenge the convention. You can learn more about the podcast as well as all the other uh, weekly products of the platform like my essays, newsletters on daily learnings, etc. All on the website at omdventures.com and you can also sign up for the newsletter. I think when you go to the site, it'll prompt you or you can just go to the support page that's on one of the tabs. All right. So today's guest is Eric Arnold, the co-founder and CEO of Planswell. Planswell is a fintech company based in Toronto that is a practically a one-stop shop for financial information and advice to Canadians. On his journey of starting Planswell, Eric had nine other businesses that he had started throughout his career. And his entrepreneurial push really started early with a desire to make $100,000 as a young teenager. And a school environment where he consistently felt misunderstood really propelled him down this path. We explore what this $100,000 goal really meant for Eric, how it really propelled him on his entrepreneurial journey, the key learnings he had from each venture. And we try to dig into the specific ones that might have really highlighted the continuous pursuit of his journey. And we also go into how Eric went about all this without a mentor until much later and how it just was such a foreign concept when he first started. And also the big thing about I think his career has been really proving nature is wrong all throughout this continuous roller coaster of a journey. And we even go to the specific roller coaster on the financial side, really building plans well. I mean, how many founders will really rack up $250,000 in personal credit card debt just to not miss their own team's payroll? Eric really has focused on creating a transparent company where he values inclusivity for his people as we discuss not only his journey, but philosophy on creating a company for his people. And this was a really fun chat where Eric and I did have a very fun and candid conversation. And I really think that you'll find a lot of value out of it just as I did. So please tune in to my fun and interesting chat with Eric Arnold. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Eric Arnold here. Hey Eric, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Eric here is the CEO and co-founder of Planswell, based out in Toronto. So Eric, for the audience who may not be familiar with the company, can you explain to us what you guys do? So basically no one knows what they need to do on a monthly basis to maintain their lifestyle in the future. Um, it's because good financial planning has always been reserved for the wealthiest of the wealthy. And because of that, pretty much everyone experiences a significant lifestyle decline, whether it's putting their kids through school or in retirement or because they have to stop working unexpectedly uh, from like an illness or something. Um, so we, we've set out to solve that problem by creating uh, or, or providing the ability to make a financial plan um, and it takes less than three minutes uh, and, uh, and it's free. Um, free often means cheap or low quality. And in this case, it's, it's actually among the best financial planning uh, results in the world. Um, 
it incorporates investments, insurance, and debt, and a whole bunch of other stuff. And we filed a patent for 13 aspects of, of our engine that, that no one else can do. So, um, yeah, we've built a team up to about 56, 57 people now uh, in Toronto. We've been serving clients for about a year and a half. We've done 150,000 financial plans for Canadians, and um, we're, we're just getting started. Wow. And so then it's, it's like an all-inclusive package. You just come here, and then everything financial will be set up yeah you'll know what you need to do to you know put money towards the right kinds of accounts so that it's tax optimized for when you're going to take it out in the future um, you'll know what kinds of insurance policies you need you know what kind of refinances you know how you should be managing your debt and managing your interest rates and and they talk to each other it's actually the only software in the world where the investments talk to the insurance that talks to the debt which is shocking because it's like, you know, as your as your wealth rises, you need less insurance uh, as you approach retirement. As your debt declines, you can contribute more to your investments. It's pretty like intuitive that these numbers should be, you know, relating to each other. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff I could kind of geek out and talk about with financial planning. But yeah, okay, so if we. Maybe maybe this will end up actually leading to you geeking about out about it because uh, I'm also very fascinated as well. So the way it works, like if if I were to sign up right now, does it uh, like just based on continuous input data that I periodically put in, like it automatically like, adjusts the way like the money is allocated to these different areas? Yeah. So a common question is like, do you aggregate information from like my bank account or my brokerage account? And the answer to that is like. In Canada, it's really not set up for that to work. Like mm-hmm. the banks don't want that to happen. And so the scraping tools that you've maybe tested out with uh, different like point companies and like Mint and this sort of like budgeting stuff, those uh, update every time you log in. They don't actually uh, persist when you are not using the product. So they can't actually track it in real time. Um, so it, we don't, we don't, short story, we don't do any of that stuff. So, so you're answering a whole bunch of questions off the top of your head. They take like less than a couple seconds for each, each question. You don't have to dive through your closet to find like a mortgage statement or anything. It, make, it makes it really easy. Um, and, uh, and so you get this plan that, that takes, it's not a plan that tells you you need to save more, um, because that's like not easy for people to do. Like this is not the drink less lattes company. Um, I like my lattes. It's fine. Uh, it's more of a crystal ball company saying, okay, this is what you're currently putting towards your future and your mortgage and your debt payments and your insurance. Like that, that pile of money that you just told us about, here's the best way to configure that money. Um, this is how much should go to your TFSA or your RSP. <clears throat> and, uh, and, then, and then it shows you like you, you wanted to retire at 65. It, you, we can actually get you to retire at 63. Or you actually need to retire at 72. Unless you want to downsize your house to a condo when you're 68 or you want to, you know, there's different ways that it can solve it for you, but it solves that plan. And, and then it walks you through the entire plan and explains every aspect to you. And it's, uh, it's completely free. Um, and then a lot of people choose to get on a call with, uh, with somebody at Planswell to talk about it even further, which is a free call and often spend 30 or 60 minutes going through their plan, adjusting it, improving it. And then, uh, and then we can assist people with implementing it because, as uh, as shocking as it is that there's no financial planning software out there that can that can figure this out for you, um, there's also no real financial institution out there that can actually implement it for you. Like a lot of people are kind of surprised, like yeah, I just go to my bank. Like banks legally can't set up your life insurance for you. Like it's this is like a big part of your financial plan. Like the you know I don't want to get too dark about it, but like people people get cancer at a rate of almost fifty percent. And that's just like cancer. People get heart attacks. They have strokes. Like the chance that uh, your financial plan will be derailed by something going wrong 
um, is almost like half of the time. And so, so you need insurance as a component um, of your financial plan as well as your investments. So if the bank can't do it, like where, where else are you going to go? So um, we can implement the whole plan. We have uh, we set it up so that we can do mortgages uh, right, right from our office. We can uh, manage people's investments online um, in a no-call model. So we don't have to like, you don't have to talk to an advisor to do this. You can just digitally implement it. Um, and, and clients are loving it. Wow. And so then the way you generate like money as a business, is it just through like the number of assets that you would manage? Yeah. So we when we implement the plan for someone, um, we make sure that we are doing absolutely what's in the best interest of the client. So there's a big difference in how people get paid at Planswell versus how they get paid at other financial institutions. Everywhere else in the industry, uh, for the most part, people are getting paid as a percentage of the revenue that they generate. Which means if they can sell you something more expensive, they get paid more. Uh, this is the case with every sales role. Um, the difference is that we call them advisors, and they're supposed to be treated like your, you know, wise grandfather. But really, it's a salesperson. Um, what we've set up here to battle that is is uh, is that we don't pay out revenue-based commissions. So the people on the phone, um, if they assist you with onboarding your plan, um, they earn the exact same amount of money as if they convinced you to buy some huge expensive thing that you don't need, or if they, you know recommend that you do even less with us like it's still they still get paid the same way um and so we're battling that that bias so that we can serve people um you know fairly across the board uh the way that plans all makes money is that when you implement investments uh you pay us um on a monthly basis you pay us uh um a small fee to manage the money um and so that's on par with the absolute lowest cost in the industry um it's it's a half a percent per year uh, if you have less than $100,000, it's 0.4% if you have more than $100,000. Um, if you uh, are implementing insurance uh, products with us, um, we don't manufacture insurance products. So we're not the ones paying out the benefit if something were to go wrong. Um, we're setting you up with the absolute lowest cost insurance products for you. And surprisingly, like depending on your demographic, like it's a different company. like It's a huge grid of, of where, where it pulls the products from. Um, but it could be a company like Sun Life, Manulife, RBC Insurance, or... A bunch of other uh, companies um, those companies pay us uh, a commission the, the same way the rest of the industry works um, and the same with mortgages when we set up a mortgage for either a bank or a, um, a less known like you know individual like they call them a mono line where it's not coming from a bank but uh, other other kinds of lenders they pay us a, a commission essentially for for setting that up um, but the the nice thing is that that's not directly passed on to the person who is assisting you mm. so wow it and like my experience actually working at the investing industry is that there's a lot of com complexity and kind of also some fun regulatory stuff with setting up these like financial institutions and so for plans like is there is like a category that you guys fit under like are you guys categorized as like an investment uh like investment company or an advisory company like how do you categorize yourself so it's really four companies right. uh, under one roof so so plans well i would say is a tech company um, that essentially doesn't sell anything uh, and gives away free financial plans and builds that technology and doesn't have any licenses and doesn't doesn't need any like regulatory stuff and it's just it's just like reading the news like you're getting information from us um, then there's planswell insurance uh, which is a, a licensed brokerage essentially uh, planswell mortgages is a, another licensed brokerage and then you have planswell portfolios which is a, a licensed portfolio manager or, or essentially a brokerage um, and, uh, and those all, you know, we all work together. It's all under the same roof and it's just set up that way. So each of those other three companies have their own licensing 
um, set up with the Ontario Securities Commission or, or Fisco under like for mortgages and insurance. Gotcha. And so if I think uh, I learned that you you were raised in Aurora, is that correct? That's right. And so I learned that at the age of 12 that you want your goal is to have $100,000. And for you know, someone that age to be very specific and say $100,000. So it seems like, you know, money was pretty uh, involved in your life earlier on. Like, why was it $100,000? Like, what, what did that money, like, mean then? I think it came from... That's a good question. I, I've never been, I've never really thought about that because uh, I've talked about that story um, a bit. Um, it probably comes from growing up that my, my dad worked at York University and they had uh, a sunshine list as, as do most public kind of companies or, or you know, government kind of things where they, they disclose the people that are making $100,000. So I, I was aware of what a sunshine list was. And, and to me, that meant you're rich. Like if you make hundred grand, you, know, you you've made it. Um, and so and I, what I was, it wasn't so much about the hundred grand. It was about, I need to be making, I need to figure out how to make enough money that I can justify dropping out of school. That was, that was the goal. Like I just didn't want to be at school. I can't like, you know, dropping out of school is cool if it's because you got rich. It's not cool if, because you're smoking pot in your parents' basement. Like, so, so I needed to figure out how to do that. And, uh, and people were going around in grade eight, I vividly remember people, you know, what are you going to do when you grow up and all that kind of questions. And I didn't want to stay in school to become a doctor and I didn't want to do paperwork and be a lawyer and read stuff and like be detail oriented. And so I didn't know what else. I couldn't be an engineer. I wasn't that focused. So like, I just want to be rich. Like I just, I just want to like not have to do any of this stuff. So, so that's where that started. Gotcha. And so then at, at that age and like continue to growing up, like what, what did school represent for you then? What was it? I just, I think I felt disrespected by most of my teachers. Um, I didn't feel like I was getting the recognition that I maybe felt that I deserved. So I had this kind of like chip on my shoulder. Um, I think I kind of saw myself as, um, pretty high aptitude, but but not really wanting to put that towards the the schoolwork and like the schoolwork just didn't seem like it made sense to me. Like why why would I do this? Like there's no there's no reason. I remember doing <clears throat> EQAO tests in grade I think it was grade six or maybe nine as well that they make you do these tests and it's like Ontario standardized testing. Um, and I remember asking like, okay, this is a whole day of tests. Like, does it affect my grades? No. Does, did my parents find out what the answers were? No. Is it like publicized anywhere? No. Okay, cool. I'm done. <laughs> I'm going for recess now. Like a little smiley face on the page and like you hand it in. It's like, why would I do that? Like it doesn't make any sense to me. So there's a lot of irrational stuff happening in the school system. So I didn't really fit in well. Huh. And so then I, I think uh, part part. The way I learned about your story was through these viral LinkedIn posts. And I think if anyone who searches up your profile on LinkedIn, they'll see all these like viral LinkedIn posts that you make about tidbits of your life. And one one sentence that kind of stuck out was, I think it was nine startups, six mortgages, three houses, seven years. And I think it might have been part of that post or I might have taken from another post where you said, I think 2018 was like the first year you actually uh, paid income tax. Or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So if we kind of backtrack it though, in this process of nine stars, like I think you you did end up going to university, but you dropped out in third year, right? Mm-hmm. What 
like what kept you in school that long despite the early dis- dislike for it and then the, when the actual time came to drop out and go be an entrepreneur like what happened there yeah so i got all the way to so my goal was to make a hundred thousand dollars right drop out of school <clears throat> so that that goal continued on so I, I had that i never shook that and so i was always looking for ways to make money a driveway ceiling company and like all sorts of chemical burns on my legs from doing it in shorts and like not really knowing what I was doing. I was delivering newspapers and <clears throat> excuse me when I was 10 and uh and then they came up with this thing that you could knock on doors and sell coupon booklets and and it was a way of saying if you like my service, you know, buy these like crappy coupons for me for 5 bucks and I get to keep 3 bucks and I was making like triple my income just by selling these coupon booklets. So I was always trying to find a way to make money. Um and so uh so yeah, my goal was to make 100 so I could drop out. And I got all the way to fourth year university and didn't achieve it. But then I dropped out anyways. So <laughs> what it was at the time was uh, um, I started a tea company. Um, so I went to the States and I saw T-Vanna. <clears throat> and uh, T-Vanna was a, a big chain of, of loose leaf tea stores. And they had all these barrels of or bins of, of tea. And they wafted it and it smelled so delicious. And you could smell it from outside the, the door in the, in the hallway of the mall. And um, I looked at that and... I'd been looking for a new idea for a business and I'd looked into clothing for a little bit and I was just looking at like the margins you can get on products and I didn't have a lot of money. So I had to find a way to stock like, you know, inventory that's cheap and sell it for a big margin. Um, you know, the, the cell phone covers obviously were taken. They had already done it in like a, a billion places. Um, and tea is like free, like tea, the markup on tea is like 10 times. Um, yeah, you can stock a whole store of tea for like nothing. Do they um, expire quickly like coffee does? Coffee has like a two-week shelf life. It's absolutely not like coffee. I have tea from 2009 in my cupboard at home and I drink it all the time. It's fine. I have like $5,000 worth of the most expensive green tea in the world and it's uh, it's just the same. <laughs> They'll argue that it's like a year or something, but it's whatever. Um, and so we started uh, a chain of tea stores in September of 2009 um, and... Uh, we opened three stores in three different malls, Upper Canada Mall, Vaughn Mills, Oakville Place. And um, as soon as we got that bug, I, I recruited like two of my friends to start this with me. And like, I'm not going back to York University. It was also like York University went on strike in 2008. And uh, and so I was I had been off school for a while. And oh. I had I ran a window cleaning company that year. I had 20 staff. I made like $40,000 in three months and took this huge vacation and came back and was like, I'm going to do something else. And I was so out of the mindset of school at that point that um, I wasn't going back to that. And so this kind of entrepreneurial tendency, like your your father worked at York and I think your mother worked as a nurse. That's right. Like where did this entrepreneurial tendency come from? Was there, like, was it their influence or like starting a business at such a young age? Talking to other entrepreneurial CEO um, type people who, who had a lot of success in life, um, I think a lot of it comes from uh, like financial stress early on in life. And mm-hmm. so uh, like food scarcity is like a commonality of, uh, of a lot of successful people that I've, I've talked to about this. Um, and so it's not like I grew up in the like slums of a third world country or something like this. I grew up in like an upper middle class neighborhood, um, uh, you know, two, two parents with decent jobs and we had like a cottage we shared with our family. And so, by no means was it uh, like did I live in hardships, but um, I don't think it's really about the scale, like compared to other places in the world. Like it's really just about like the, the actual like you know 
environment that you're living in. Like you can you can be in a you can be in a multi million dollar mansion and and screw up your budgeting and like and be financially stressed, right? Like you probably probably more likely to be financially stressed if you have that kind of money and you're, you're messing around. Um, and so yeah, my parents, I think. I don't want to describe them as like like reckless, but like I think they they reached a bit and they would like you know push to to get the boat and push to get like the cottage and like maybe like you know there's a lot of stuff that comes up. I'm a parent. I have four kids. Like we're, we're we run a negative cash flow most months. So like it's like you hope you're gonna figure out how to you know bury your you know dig your way out of this eventually. But uh, um, so yeah, there was times where it was Wednesday and I had to make lunch and. There wasn't really any food there, so I'd be like digging out a flat can of club soda, and that was lunch on a Wednesday, and and it was never really talked about, but it was kind of known that payday was on Thursdays, and so like I think that kind of stuff in, in elementary school like got to me and was like you know I need to like I had a, a strong urge to figure out how to be financially independent like from an early age. And was there like a particular entrepreneur that you had spoken to at an early age that really like got you going to that world of oh so this is a possibility I can start company i can start a tea franchise i didn't learn the word entrepreneur until i was 19 years old hmm. so i don't i didn't actually have the mentorship for that um my dad passed away when i was 17 he probably would have introduced me some more of that stuff um but uh but yeah it wasn't a part of our our family like it, when i when I told my mom I was starting a tea company and dropping out of school, she like bawled at like Eastside Mario's over the free salad. And it was like, <laughs> yeah, it was uh, um, not not part of my lineage. Do you feel that looking back and you know with hindsight um, that your father passing away like at a relatively early age kind of really propelled you to become more independent faster? I think I was always really independent. Okay. Um, yeah, like it would it, it would have been. I did a lot of like scary things as a as a kid. To most parents, it would have been like, why doesn't this kid just like chill and like go back to school and just do normal things? Like it was like no, I, I was very drawn to novelty and chaos and like mm-hmm. just just uh, anything that was like drastically different or being the contrarian or devil's advocate and just. Uh, so I don't know if that, I don't know how much of that came from my parents or was suppressed for, suppressed by my parents for a long time. I'm not really sure where where it comes from exactly. Okay. Do you do you think the the disrespect from the the school came first or came after, like as a result of your contrarian mindset? Yeah. I, so like I was bullied a lot in school, and mm-hmm. like and teachers didn't really like me, and like often like parents of other kids didn't like me so like coaches on sports teams and stuff and Mm -hmm. so like and maybe that was all in my head like maybe i just made it up maybe i just like having enemies i don't know like it was just like i I felt like um whenever i felt disrespected i would i would you know develop this it it was motivating to me like it was Mm -hmm. motivating to to perform better and to be better and to to um to like win versus those people Mm -hmm. like prove to them that they were wrong about me basically Right, which is like probably not the greatest motivator in life, but like it's it seemed to be pretty motivating for for in a lot of scenarios. Yeah, and so Planswell, I think, is your tenth startup, and you've been operating for uh, I think past four years now. It started in twenty fifteen, sixteen. 
yeah, so Planswell, the official launch to the public was early 2018. Their first dollar raised and first employee hired was May 2016. 2016. A lot of 2015 was spent like preparing for it with, with my co-founders. Mm-hmm. And so then before Planswell, you've had like nine startups and you've listed a few, but you know, it includes things like electronics return and liquidations. You have like the tea company, you have indie music subscription, you even have like hypnotic weight loss. Mm-hmm. Um, That's good. I lost 40 pounds. <laughs> you're, you're also like, you know, you flipped houses before. I think you've also flipped your own houses because you've had three. Yeah, yeah. Um, you also had, I think, um, virtual like learning, affiliate marketing. So out of all of these, like if you had, it's like, you know, each company is probably kind of like a form of like a, you know, a child to you at that point. But if you had to pick kind of three particular ones that might have had a very material impact to your growth as an entrepreneur and to come to this kind of point with plans, well, which kind of businesses kind of stick out for you? So I, I use aspects from every company I've started in plans. Well, mm. um, and I think like that, that track record of companies speaks to what you were asking about with like mentorship and entrepreneurs and like, did anybody teach you any of this stuff? And it's like, I did have a shocking lack of mentorship in my life, like growing up in like some weird place in Aurora and like, just not, knowing what a startup is and like hearing about Facebook on the news and like, just not like, just not from this world. Um, my mentality around business was that I had to figure out how to build a company that could have digitally scalable, um, user acquisition at a low cost, um, where that user would convert into a, a paid, uh, like client. Um, and the revenue from that paid client would exceed the cost of acquiring them. So profitable on acquisition. And part of that mindset came from the affiliate marketing world where I'm running your campaign. You're going to pay me two bucks to have a new lead or whatever. Um, I have to spend less than $2 in marketing to get that. And if I can get that, I can make it big. And I, and I did with with the daily deal companies, I I was running the same campaigns for every single daily deal company. And I was making like $7,000 a day profit. Um, it was amazing. Um, they didn't make profit on those. Like they, the big startups, like they, they still burn money acquiring those users, but they pay the affiliates profit profitably. But I guess in my mind that something like click where it was like, no, as a business, I need to be profitable on acquisition, which doesn't really exist. Um, so like it exists in, in very like transactional, like human focus, like not, it exists in a not scalable way. Like there's lots of salespeople that are like, no, I'm profitable on a sale that I make takes me like a month to make the sale and like um but it's not it's not it doesn't exist in digital acquisition like mass scale mass market like creating tons of value for people um that's where you, where you hear about all these startups that are not profitable amazon taking 20 years to get the profitability uber not being profitable even though they're the biggest transportation company in the world or whatever it is um that kind of obsession with business models like figuring out can we get profitable on acquisitions that a lot of those companies that, that you mentioned and, and a few others they all actually could work. They, they actually did work. Like <laughs> I had revenue, I had users, um, but because they weren't profitable on acquisition, it would require raising money and burning other people's money in order to scale that up. And I didn't know how to do that. Like nobody ever told me like you could just go raise money. Um, and I, like as a concept, I understood that that happened, but like I just I don't have rich friends and family. Like how do you just go get a million dollars? That was like a bizarre idea to me. And then it was also like, so the people that I would go to would be like very close family and friends. And it's like, I don't, I don't know that that's going to work. Like I don't want to 
waste their money and lose it. Like I've never lost an investor a dollar. Like that was very uh, like scary to me. So in, in all of those cases, I just shut the companies down. <laughs> if you look back at the cost per acquisition on the first one with, the, with Weekly Indie where we were, um, had independent music uh, so, uh, given to us and it was socially curated and then we released 10 songs a week that were actually awesome songs from independent artists. And the artists would split the revenue 50-50 from us and it was a subscription service, it was like seven bucks a month. Like we were acquiring credit card submits for $30 of ad spend um, that converted over 50% of the time and stayed, stayed subscribed for like, I think it was like five or six months, um, which or whatever the math was, I can't do the math in my head right now, but like it wasn't, it wasn't quite enough to make your money back. But that was like an MVP. Like in, in today's numbers, like if you look at that, you're like, holy crap, like that's, you should focus on that. Like that, there's a lot of opportunity. Like me today doing that would be like, wow, like we've hit it. Like let's go raise $10 million. But like back then it was like, oh, well, not profitable. So like shut it down. So, so, um, so yeah, it took until like 2015, like in, in 2012 when I, when I figured out that we, there was a huge demand for financial planning and that we could, we could automate the onboarding of it. We could get people to give us all the information over the internet to build financial plans. And we were like, wow, this could be like a multi-billion dollar company. Like we could build, build this out. We could build the planning software. We could build the onboarding. Um, and I was pitching that to, to guys at the bank making a million dollars plus. And they were like, yeah, you know, this is, this is really great. But like, what are you going to do? Start a bank? Like you can't just start a bank. And I was like, oh, okay. All right. Well, I'm just going to go flip a couple houses. Then and like, It wasn't until 2015 that I met someone who was like, you can raise a lot of money with this. And I was like, I can? Like, how, how does that work? Like, so we started raising money and it turned out to be like fairly easy to raise, like now $17 million in like three years. So, wow. Talk about the power of networks. Yeah. Like, it's yeah. actually the environment around you. Yeah. And, and so then you, you mentioned time at the bank. And so that, that was at um, CIBC with Gundy when you were uh, a financial advisor then, right? Investment advisor. Investment yeah. advisor, sorry. Mm -hmm. I guess they're different. It's different. Uh, investment advisor implies, or I think maybe directly means, I think it might be like a legal title, but it's uh, yeah. it means IROC licensed. Right. So you can do like stock trading. And it's like a stockbroker, basically. Financial advisor means nothing. Oh. It means you can go to Kinko's and print business cards. Oh, cool. Good to know that. And, and so then uh, when when you got your job, it saves like you, you know, you had started a bunch of companies prior to. So then why did you decide to actually get a job at you know a very you know bureaucratic institution like a bank and was that because of this desire to go into this financial world or like what was it so i was up in aurora and the daily deal market had just crashed um and so like groupon had gone public and everybody realized that it was useless and everything went to zero and they like all the daily deal companies disappeared um and so i stopped making seven thousand dollars a day i was making nothing again and uh <laughs> Um, it didn't, it didn't last for very long, but, uh, um, so I was looking for what to do next. And my wife, uh, had just finished university and she wanted to do her master's of teaching at, at UFT. Um, and so she was saying she wanted to go move in with her grandmother for two years. And I was like, no, <laughs> like we were in our, our first house and, uh, and I didn't want that to happen. So, so I said, no, I'll, I'll find something to do in Toronto and we'll move down to Toronto. And, um, so I said, okay, I need to get like a real job and like a, another house and so like a mortgage and stuff and so like who makes the most money that doesn't have a university degree or any experience in anything 
investment advisors do. <laughs> so like, that, was, that was about the, the extent of it. And so I reached out to um, some of my mentors and was just learning a little bit more about how that works. And I, I was like, I've been obsessed with the stock markets and investing and, and financial planning and, and money since obviously forever. But um, so I reached out and I, and I went and I interviewed there and they kind of looked at me a bit funny and like as you can imagine like I didn't have never had a real job before <laughs> like could have a varied background um, and I went in with all these ideas of like how to do like you know use like digital marketing to generate like new users and new people to talk to and how to market myself and they were like you can't do any of these things like you're not allowed to use the internet like you're not even allowed to have a LinkedIn profile at the time I was I was one of the first people in the financial industry allowed to have a LinkedIn profile in 2011 like in 2011, like everybody had LinkedIn. Yeah. <laughs> like it was, it was weird. Um, and they were like, what if you can, what if we only let you use the phone book and the phone, uh, and not market yourself in any other way? <laughs> would you still want to work here? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. I like, I'm so curious. Like I would always take jobs just to learn. Like I went and worked at a car dealership for three months just because they like said the training program was awesome. And I just wanted to learn about like cars and this is not that I was taking advantage of them. Like I wanted to test it out to see if I could make decent money doing it. But, um, I was just so curious to, to get in there and find out what they do. And I got there and they were like, you know, you're the first person in 15 years we've hired that doesn't have a university degree. And like, all right, cool. <laughs> Whatever. Like, what do you guys do here? And they're like, well, you go, you know, go find clients. Okay. How many clients go get 300 clients. Okay. Like this week or like today. And they're like, no, in your life, like whole career is getting 300 clients. It's like, wow like what is going on here like, i was just onboarding ten thousand people a day like a couple months ago for groupon like what are we what are we doing like why can't it be 300 a day and they were like you're nuts <laughs> like so then i went on this like five-year journey of being like an anthropologist of the financial industry and trying to figure out like why is this so like cumbersome and arduous and why like why why does it take a month to to assist one person with a financial plan and and because of that have to charge them gazillions of dollars and why like and therefore they have to have millions of dollars to be your client like <clears throat> you know why can't we improve this through technology and so then what was the uh the nail in the coffin that made you say i'm done with this i'm i'm gonna go start the well, bank the company <laughs> it was it was a two-year program uh, like the rookie program there. So I knew I was going to get paid uh, for two years and um, my wife was in school. And so I was like, I wasn't sure exactly what else I wanted to do. Like I, I was giving it a fair shot at the beginning. And then, then it became like, how can I be like valuable through marketing? Like how can I be valuable through entrepreneurship? Um, so I was testing all sorts of ways of, of improving the process so that users get more access and, and advisors can get more um efficient um and so that was working well and so by the end of the two years i knew like there was a hard stop no matter what happened <clears throat> so i um kind of transitioned out of that into a more peripheral marketing role and i was assisting uh advisors from a bunch of different companies with doing seminar marketing so we were like booking out restaurants and, and telemarketing to people in certain areas to invite them to dinner to learn more about financial planning and, and the stock markets and whatnot and no, it was working quite well. It was like I, br I brought the cost down considerably. Um, we were outsourcing uh, the people on the phones to the Philippines and we were figuring out automated way to generate the lists and the Canada 411 and scraping that. And so there's a lot of like little hacks of like entrepreneurship to um, 
to make that uh, process a bit better. And then, and then I just kind of like came to that conclusion that like, I can't, I can't build a bank and I can't like all, all the stuff that they've been telling me, like, okay, I just give up. Like I'm going to go uh, build a, a socially curated search engine instead. And <laughs> that was, was on to the next thing. And then, so after you build like the social curated engine, um, like the journey to actually getting to Plansville, you said like you you met you know different kinds of people and they started like educating you. Oh no, yeah, you can actually raise money and build this financial company. So it seems like that was constantly in the back of your mind that you're telling more people about it and trying to actually build it out. Yeah. So in 2015, I was I was working with one of my friends who was uh, was an advisor and I was kind of helping him out and just spending time with him and learning more about financial planning and what they do and. Um, so I was, I was kind of re-engaged and also like robo-advisors were coming to market and I was like, supremely interested in what they were doing, but also very disappointed in the, in the lack of, of service. Like it's, it's like, you know, you're like bragging about young people getting into investing and, you know, having a hundred bucks a month for the first time in their life because they got their new job and they're renting somewhere and they just paid off their student debt. And it's like. First of all, if you're if all you have is a hundred dollars a month to be putting away somewhere, it really doesn't matter the story about mutual fund fees versus ETFs. Like the difference of one percent on a hundred dollars is a dollar. Like this is not the issue at hand. Um, the other issue is that that hundred dollars is not your biggest asset in life. So what you invested in um, doesn't really matter. What what matters, what your biggest asset is, is your ability to make money. Um, so you're going to make millions of dollars over the course of your career over the next few decades. Like, what are you doing to protect that asset? And at the very beginning of your career, like sometimes insurance uh, products are more relevant to your plan. And so I was asking robo-advisors, like, why aren't you talking to people about that? Why aren't you talking to them about protecting that asset? And they were like, well, insurance is like a different industry. Like, I'm, you know, it's biased and salesy. We don't want to really get into that space. And I was like, okay, like, sure. Like, that's a okay answer, I guess. Like, so if you're just focusing on investments, like why aren't you asking what the investment is for? Like if it's for buying a car or if it's for buying a house or if it's for uh, saving for retirement, um, <clears throat> those are three different types of registered accounts. Those are three different asset classes. Um, those are three different tax strategies. Like why aren't you building plans for people to optimize uh, these investments? Um, taxes, the most expensive thing you're ever gonna spend in your life. Like that's a huge part of, uh, of investing. Um, why aren't you building plans? And they were like, well, you know, this is complicated and like, this is supposed to be easy and simple. And like, we don't really want to do that. And we're, you know, just copying the American robo advisors and they're not doing that. And so like, we're, we're just going to keep doing this. And then it was like, okay, well you should like hire me. I, I want to come work here. I'm very curious about this. I want to learn how this all works. <laughs> And uh, they didn't call me back, so I didn't, <laughs> didn't get a job. <laughs> so, but I was inspired at that point to be like, okay, we could do this a lot better. Um, and as well, like the business model, like as an entrepreneur was like annoying because it was like, you must be spending like 20 years uh, to get this client onboarded. Like the cost of acquisition, probably the payback period is probably like 10 to 20 years. That is like, that makes me sick to my stomach as a, as a like business person. Like I can't imagine that kind of investment. You're going to have to invest hundreds of millions of dollars to build out a business that isn't going to pay you back for over a decade and depends on the, the industry maintaining the margins. Like even, even at a half a percent, it's still 
Like that's like what we charge us, what everybody else charges at the lowest possible rate. Mutual funds are like 2.7%. Even half a percent is, is kind of expensive. Um, and I expect that that will actually come down considerably. So if you're betting that it's going to stay that way for the next 20 years, like I think you might be sorely mistaken. So like the business model kind of freaked me out. Um, <clears throat> having holistic planning um, and more things that you can work on with your client, if you're helping them in every way um, and they're really engaged in their plan, um, it's it's a it's a more sustainable business model. Like much less likelihood you're just going to close up shop, which is what a lot of these robo advisors have done. Um, and so there was there was just an incentive to build a better model, um, to both serve people better and to also build a better business. And so we started going around, and I vividly remember going around in 2015 and being like, "This is going to cost us a million dollars. Like we're gonna we're gonna need a million dollars to build this." And then it ended up costing us like. 12 million dollars <laughs> but like <laughs> by the time i was certain it's gonna be a million dollars which is a lot <laughs> it's like we had no idea what we were doing grossly underestimated the cost <laughs> yeah well wow. we, we thought that we've actually thought that we would have more of a groupon issue where like when groupon came to market everyone was like oh that's a good idea like i'm gonna go to market tomorrow with a competitor to groupon um and then and that's what happened so you had like hundreds of the daily deal companies um, we were concerned that that would happen to us. Like people are going to realize, man, people want financial plans. Like we can, we can build them financial plans. We thought it was going to be relatively easy to build the software. It's not easy to build the software. Like it took like a huge team of people, like multiple years and, and over $10 million. Like, um, and that was like done like quite efficiently. Like if it was, if this was like a big organization or like it would cost 50, $75 million and, and have a 75% chance of failing. Um, so it, on one hand, it was ridiculously expensive and took a long time to build, um, and we're you know we're still not even close to being where we exactly want to be. But already we, we think we're amongst the best financial planning softwares in the world. Um, we've created a good moat, so like it actually would be incredibly difficult for another company to come to market and uh, and compete with us. And I think in one of your other posts, like you talk, I think you referenced the time when um, like I think two big investments fell through in a month and. You had to pay salaries for like 40 of your employees. So you started like trying to find family and friend money to pay payroll. Mm -hmm. And you even went to, I think you and your founders went to like $250,000 in the credit card debt mm -hmm. to go through that. Like that's just, it like it mind balls me like the amount of like personal risk that you are willing to take on to keep this company afloat. Like what was going through your mind at, during like those, those moments? Like, and it doesn't seem like, you know, there's this one hard one. Like you've had multiple of like these kinds of cut wrenching moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can see it on my credit report actually. So like if you look at the monthly credit report, you see them all, all the different companies that offer it now. Um, you can see every like eight months or so, uh, every time that we do a new round, um, my credit score just goes like, it's just like, it's like a little, or it's like a round like hump. And then, just like a crash in my in the report, and then and then it like bounces back up almost to like where it was before, and then a round hump, and then crash. And like so, so this is like um, looks like vampire teeth or something. Like it's, so you're like, oh, that's that's the raise month. I can see that. It's like, so we we've been pretty like it would seem like reckless to like how how we've like been you know, funding the company and, and waiting to the last minute. And it's always like, cause everything takes longer than you think. So you need these hurdles, you need these certain development milestones, you need these client milestones to, to kind of get the next round done. And the rounds always take longer than you think. And you're working with strategic partners and big companies that take longer. Um, and so, yeah, we often like, 
in the very, very beginning, like there was some, we made some mistakes and we ended up having to like be short on payroll when we were up like a, a dozen or so people. And like, that was, that was terrible. Like I remember having the conversation with the team being like, look, like we're on the horizon. We can see like we may miss payroll. Like we may be late on payroll. Um, and we want you to know that. And like, we had to be completely transparent about every dollar that's in our bank account and how everything's working. And like, that's a level of transparency. Most companies don't have um, but it forced us in that in that moment um, to do that. It was like six six months into the business, and we've maintained that transparency all the way through, which is fantastic. I, I, I've quite enjoyed that. And a lot of people will say, if if you discuss our culture, <clears throat> transparent would be a, a word that they use. Um, but yeah, since then we haven't. That was like 2016, I think, and uh, we haven't missed payroll since then. But uh, but certain times, definitely, like between Scott and I, we've had a couple hundred thousand dollars of uh, credit card debt, and like we we went, we went like Bob, our CFO, refuses to get um, corporate uh, credit cards because he he's insistent that uh, no one will care about uh, submitting receipts because it's like not their problem. So he makes us use our own credit cards, um, which I'm not complaining too much about because like you might get some points here and there, but. Um, but yeah, they, we stopped getting our uh, expenses paid. It was one of the first things that stops getting paid when you start running out of money. So <laughs> it racks up pretty quick. And I'm guessing you, you know, you and Scott, like, you guys still had the conviction, even though you were taking all that debt. Like, no, it's going to work out. It's going to work out. Don't worry about it. It's such a weird thing. Like you're in this like two track mindset in, in this in this role of like founder, CEO, like running a business <clears throat> where... Like I, I can imagine I've, I've had business before where I'm like, I don't think this business is going to work. Like, I think this business actually sucks. Like, I think this is a bad idea. <laughs> we should shut it down. Like I've had that mindset about a lot of my past businesses. Um, this one, I remember back in 2015, 2016, uh, asking my co-founders like, what, do you, what, what, what percent chance do you think this is going to work? And eventually it was like, it's such a common question. It was like, what percent are you at? And then, and then it would just be like, eh, 65. <laughs> and then like over time but like by by the time by like the time we had like five employees of like mid 2016 we were at like 99 percent like mm-hmm. we were just like certain this is gonna work and like still today like every day i've never doubted it. I've, I've, I've always there's been things that you find that are like not ideal but like it's we've had a shocking run of like miraculous discoveries like there's probably about 50 miracles that have happened in this company that if, if any one of them didn't happen the company would have disappeared but like so there's, there's dark moments but like most of that is related to like funding of the business, but like the actual business model is working incredibly well. Like it's like an absolute certainty in my mind and in most other people's mind that this is going to be one of the greatest companies ever. Um, and then you have this other track of like funding where like you're talking to random people they've talked to for like 15 minutes wondering if they'll give you millions of dollars and like do they understand that this is an absolute certainty um in their minds and the answer is absolutely not and so like so, so like there's a huge probability that the company will just disappear one day because people will stop giving it millions of dollars but, but contingent on that continuing i'm absolutely certain this is going to be a hit on, on that note i think like um you i think you also mentioned in one of your posts about how like you've got rejected from like or you've pitched at, like, at least like 600 investors or something and a quote that i like is uh i'm gonna read it off here is every no comes with a piece of advice success is the sum of these advices be valuable be transparent and keep pitching and in my own journey 
of going on my own kind of weird road to like entrepreneurship and building this company like in the beginning it was a lot of um i think just in the beginning of my career it started with like blocking out a lot of advice I'm like no i think like that stu- stubborn naivety like i think i'm right i'm just gonna do this and then as i went on this journey i met hundreds of entrepreneurs and everyone will give me advice so i listened to all these advices and then now i'm trying to i'm trying to find my way back to the middle ground of some advice is good mm-hmm. some are complete hot trash and sometimes it's not applicable to me or this particular point like how did you go about um handling that kind of process of you, you probably get tons of advice from you've pitched like 600 people so i'm guessing you've gotten at least like 600 pieces of advice yeah it's it's really interesting and there's different phases of, of starting a company and there's different types of people in different networks like you, you might have a network where everyone is like you're an idiot you can't start a business you're going to lose everything and like there's people that have their entire network would say that and then there's other people who have entire networks that would be like yeah you should do it it's great like you absolutely like you're going to win i love you you're great like you shouldn't listen to either of those camps right <laughs> like those are both probably you know not yeah it's not healthy um you get out and you start pitching people but if you're pitching the wrong people like when I was pitching people at the bank that had their whole life working at the bank where they're giving half of the money they make to the bank. And it's just like, what are you doing here with your life? Like that is not the kind of person who's going to be like, yeah, you should raise millions of dollars and start a bank. Like those are the people that are like, no, you should work at the bank for your whole life. Like it's so like, it's finding the right people to get the advice from. Um, the best people to get the advice from are the people that you're asking uh, for money. Um, and there's two kinds of people in a startup that you ask for money. One is your client and one is your investor, right? And so if you're asking, like, if you're walking around to your social network being like, I got this idea. Do you think it's a good idea? And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's a good idea. Next question is like, great, you want to buy it? And then if they're like, oh, uh, no, I, I, I'm not going to buy it. Why? Like, that's the feedback that comes, right? Like, that's the good feedback. Um, it's, it's at the point of transaction when they're either like, yes, I will give you the money. Like, okay, why will you give, give me the money right now? Give it to me. Um, and I'll like, I'll give you the product later when we build it, but like, I need the deposit now, please. Like it's that actual transfer of money. Um, that's going to either come with a no, that's going to come with advice that, okay, that's real advice as to why not. Um, or, or, or a yes. So, uh, but yeah, it's, it's really tricky. Like I've come across people that are like in their own mind. They're like, you know, I, what does anybody else know? I'm going to, uh, I'm going to just keep going anyways. And they get caught in this cognitive tunnel of a, of a bad idea and they, Usually it's people that have a bit, a bit later stage in life and they've have, they have a bit more of their own money and they're self-funding. Um, self-funding is a, is a pretty dangerous thing. Uh, if you're, if it's a big idea that needs to, you need to spend a couple million bucks, like don't, don't spend the first million yourself um, before you get any feedback from people you're trying to raise from. Um, but then at the same time, like as you get a little bit more developed, like, you know, as a, as a founder CEO, um, you're like the only person in the company that has all of the information. Hmm. Like, it's not like you're like withholding it from people. Like you're the only person who has the perspective. Like you can have board members, you can have advisors, like they all have their own advice that comes from their own personal paradigms. And it can be really helpful if it's on like specific, like strategies or specific like management skills or things you're trying to develop. You're asking, I'm reading a hard thing about hard things. Have you read that? Yes, I have. Yeah. It's my, it's my second time reading it. I think it's the only book I've ever read twice. It's like so good. And uh, yesterday I was at the part in the book where, um, so it's Ben Horowitz from Andreessen Horowitz, like the famous investors, and they worked at 
uh, Netscape and invented all sorts of cool stuff. And then LoudCloud was one of the first cloud computing companies. And so he's the CEO of LoudCloud. And, um, and they're just in this like horrendous period of crisis. And, and he's sitting there and like these people come in and he's got to make this decision. And, and people know that he's kind of making this decision. And the people from his team come in and they, they pitch him this like 40 slide deck about what should be done. And he's like, he's like, I sat there, I listened to every, every deck, every slide. I didn't interrupt them at all. And at the end, I just said, did I ask for this presentation? <laughs> he's like, and that was the beginning of my transition from like peacetime CEO to wartime CEO, because they don't know the whole picture. Like who, who are they to tell me what decisions should be? I am the only one who can make this decision. So like there is an aspect of that confidence that is, that is very helpful as you're, as you're more developed. But when it comes to ideating at a new stage of like, is this a good business idea? Like you, you gotta, you gotta find the clients to give you the feedback and the investors and, and then the strategic people that have made their money in a very similar industry that understands very similarly what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but really like you, part of it is that you should be the expert in that industry. Like when, when people come to me and pitch me their ideas, one of my first questions, like, why you, like, why are you the person, why are you the best person in the world to bring this idea to market? Um, a lot of times I choke on that question, but sometimes they give me these like hilariously arrogant answers of how good looking they are and like all this other stuff. Like, well, people who trust me, but like when it's like, oh, because I'm the expert that made this patent on this thing that nobody else understands, and like therefore I should. It's like, oh, okay, cool, like that makes sense, or like it's like oh, I'm this like you know marketing expert in this like funnel or whatever. Like if you have like you you should have that specific experience in what you're doing, otherwise like somebody else should do it. Right. Yeah, I think uh, I think a very similar point is like when when I was in the hedge fund, our portfolio manager would always ask the analyst, "What's your edge? If you don't have an edge, there's right. no idea." Yeah. And I think yeah, it's probably as simple as that. Where yeah, it's like, "What's your edge? What's your unique perspective that nobody else has?" Yeah, exactly. And and for you then, like as actually, a question I'd ask is, "Have you reached your hundred thousand mark now?" Hundred thousand the uh, the goal income yeah yeah I I reached it uh, January first I got a raise all this right my, my first time ever making all right. over hundred grand decide to pay yourself nice yeah finally uh, well I I don't get to make those decisions but yeah, our investors allowed it so nice. it was, uh, yeah. and so with 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 that you know you finally hit that goal that you set when you were twelve how and also as you're operating this you know financial company now how how has your relationship with money evolved you've had this long period where you know, you've started companies you've you know had to get like mortgages on your house you've taken on big credit card debts to pay for your employees like and i'm wondering yeah how has that relationship with money evolved for you i think a big change happened over the course of like 20 15 16 of of getting to the point to, or even or i guess 2013 was the, my most recent house where i built a, a triplex that i live in and i have two other units and they pay for the whole mortgage and we have a lot of home equity and a lot of this was was luck flipping houses uh through the the greatest boom of real estate in toronto's history <laughs> like it's not it's not me but, but i got really lucky with, with the timing um but getting to that point where you have enough equity and you have enough passive income to uh well, ideally to survive, like that's, that's re- retirement, I guess, would be to maintain your lifestyle. But like just just to that, that kind of safety net um, 
has taken a lot of that stress off and and over that time also building like that personal equity like I, I've been like in between those companies I like took weird jobs here and there and worked for buddies companies and learned different things and um, the odd time I would uh, go and look for a job like just you know for something to do and like you know to make money is <laughs> the main reason um, and I would get like rejected everywhere like nobody ever wanted to give me a job <laughs> it was like um, I talked to a recruiter once and they were like, I have nothing for you. Like you, you were useless. <laughs> like, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I think, I think more recently, like building more equity in myself and the experiences that I've had, like I've learned so much in the last few years running plans well that I think that, that confidence that like, not to say I'm not committed to plans, but like I'm expecting to be here for the rest of my life and we're going to make a like the world's greatest company and like it's going to be so huge but like I, I don't have as much of a panic about like if the company's not doing well then i'll stop getting paid and then i will get paid again shortly after that doing something else that will be like fairly easy for me to figure out like it's not like i have more options now you know mm -hmm. and on that part with the personal equity it what's something um that for you, it's just so obvious when you're, you know, as you've been on this journey of building plans, well, like there's a very obvious thing to think for you. But for other people, like they, they're surprised when they hear it, that they go, "Oh, that's never thought about that problem." Or, sorry, so so what's obvious about about what aspect? Well, just I guess just operating plans, well, like actually building it. And for you, like as a CEO, these are like very obvious things for you, where it could be like the struggles of you know having to put your people first, actually running a very transparent company. But when you might talk to your, like, your peers about it, they go, hmm, never thought about it that way. Hmm. <clears throat> I think, oh, that's an interesting one. One of the things that we focused on a lot is uh, culture. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that, it gets a hot topic. You hear about it at like conferences and stuff. We used to hear about it all the time. We used to go to a ton of conferences when we were at the idea stage. And, uh, and it was always a big like panel about culture and uh, inclusivity and diversity. And, and I remember talking a lot about with my co-founders, like, what do, what do we think about that? Like I, I, I would often feel uncomfortable when it was uh, being discussed on a panel because I felt like the people on the panel usually sounded scripted and, and insincere and like, or like that they didn't actually understand in a deep way what they were talking about. They were just using like talk tracks, like fluffy talk tracks. So I was like, we're going to be on a panel one day, first of all, that is going to ask us these questions. We need a really smart answer <laughs> that makes us look really good. And then the more we talked about it, it was like, okay, like I actually suspect that um, this, this matters a lot. And I think that if you can, if you can have an amazing culture and it starts with a mission driven, uh, you know, uh, purpose, um, and that mission-driven culture is fairly easy to find at startups. Usually you, the reason you create a startup is because you want to solve a massive problem or an injustice. But um, so it starts with that. And then it's about like really, really that culture that people want to join and people want to be a part of the team and be a part of the family and feel included and feel like they can find people that are like them and create an amazing workplace. Um, the, that, that, that would pay off uh, in spades. And so you'd, you'd be able to recruit more people your recruiting costs would go down you're like you'd be able to recruit better people when you can't afford to pay like full market salaries at that point and um you'd have better retention and like there's, there's just a lot you'd have better 
like client experiences because people would care about the business. You you know, so how how we built out our options program um, was like a really big thing that we spent a lot of time on, and we think it's like considerably better than other companies. Like we don't force you to exercise your options if you stop working for us or if you get fired, like most companies do. Like you get to hold your vested options for ten years, uh, and then they could be incredibly valuable at that point. We think that that's a part of your your earnings. Like you don't claw back people's income when they don't work for you anymore. You know why would you do that? Um, the transparency aspect of it, the um, yeah, just a lot of thought goes into it. Like and, and it's like correcting people that culture is not your ping pong table and your free lunches and your group benefits and like those are just like table stakes, like check boxes of what is expected and like those are office expenses <laughs> those are not like there's nothing to do with culture um separating that out i love that and i think the, the the first point about yeah like the amount of buzzwords thrown out for culture with inclusivity diversity it reminds me of something my friend said in the investing world where he's saying i tell all my clients that i'm a long-term investor and also tell them you will never meet an investor that tells them i'm a short-term investor <laughs> same thing with culture right yeah no company goes out and says we're not inclusive we're not fun we don't care about culture but i think yeah like one of the reasons when i left the investing world i ended up doing this kind of work is like i've studied hundreds of businesses that have succeeded and lasted 20 30 years and the fundamental first principle of these companies has been the investment in people like the understanding that you have to invest in your people first and once you develop the people then it'll lead to better retention. Those people will bring on people like them and actually lead to better talent attraction. But like they are the fundamental assets. And as the businesses evolve to have humans actually create APIs and create nonlinear outputs, they become the primary asset for the company. So I think it's it's definitely a priority thing. And yeah, it's, it's amazing to hear how like you align this long-term incentive process for like the options where you actually, you know, you allow the people to be vested for like 10 years instead of saying, oh yeah, like, you know, we're going to do two-year vest. That that creates like a short-term incentive mm-hmm. program. Yeah, the, the, the diversity aspect of it as a buzzword, I think was probably the biggest one that, that got to me where it was like, I think what you were saying about diversity is fluff. I don't think you really understand humanity enough to like, it just, it was really annoying like listening to all of this stuff and it made me really study it a lot and think about it and it was like, why is everybody saying diversity is good when we don't like diversity? Like everybody's saying diversity is great, but nobody likes diversity. And it's like, this is like a very shocking thing to say. Like, what the hell are you talking about saying nobody likes diversity? But like there used to be five species of humans on this planet. Now there is one because we murdered the other four because we don't like people who are not like us. And we have a huge bias towards people that look like us, sound like us, think like us. Like we thought those are the people we want to hang out with. We want to join like churches with all the exact same kind of people in it. Like we, we want to find our cliques and like, they need to be exactly like us, like our friend groups. So why are we all talking about wanting diversity? And then you get people on the panel like, well, it's great for the company. It's great for the ideas. And like those things may or may not be true. Probably are. Um, but like how about just not being racist? Like that's like we're, this is the most multicultural country, like city in the world in Toronto. Um, how, how can we make like inclusivity is a better term that like it makes more sense like people have an easier time talking about inclusivity it's not that like we we want to have a, a mix of people for the sake of having a mix of people uh, or to fulfill a checkbox or whatever it's good to have a mix of people because there's a mix of people in the population um, and there's a mix of people in the talent pool and so if you're not 
representing that mix in your in your company, it's because you're racist. So like, let's make sure that that's not the case. It's either that or it's because when somebody gets into your company who is not like everybody else, they feel incredibly alienated, right? And I and I and you know, I'm a white male like CEO and so every meeting I go into is filled with majority white males and like most business environments. So I feel incredibly included. Everybody's just like me. Um, if you step back from that, it's like, what would it be like if every meeting I went into, I was the only male or the only white person? Um, and that was every meeting I did all day long, all week long. Would I really, would I enjoy that as much as I currently enjoy my life? Uh, probably not, right? And so it's it's actually not about creating more diversity uh, for everyone. Like I may want a little bit more diversity in my life because that's nice and novel and a, a bit of a difference from what I'm currently doing. But for other people that may not actually be what they're looking for. So it's it's actually a question of how do you create homogenous environments within a company uh, of for everyone to feel like they can be a part of a homogenous community, mm-hmm. which is not ever talked about. Where they feel safe and actually belonged. Yeah. So so the focus became how do we create small groups? How do we create um, uh, opportunities and culture budgets and, and teams and and uh, and events for small groups of people that can do things that they find that they have in common um, and they can click together and they can find uh, friends within the company that they relate to where it's not all about diversity because for some people everything they do is diversity and uh, and that would be maybe not as comfortable. I love that. I love that. And God, that's that's another topic I think we can like riff on for hours because that's something that's very dear and passionate to my heart but in the interest of the time i'm just going to ask you one final question um where were you so this is kind of a two-part question where were you when you were 22 do you remember what you were doing then uh 22 yeah. I, I think that was the first year that i worked at wood gundy and i moved into my second house in toronto okay so if the 22 year old eric were to see you right now in this boardroom in Planswell. What do you think that Eric's emotional reaction would be? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, I heard a quote at one point, I always hesitant to repeat Warren Buffett quotes because I think people misquote him or make up quotes a lot and say Warren Buffett said it. But I feel like there was an interview with him where they asked him like, when did you think you were going to become a billionaire or whatever, like, or like, however you're describing yourself. Um, and, and he was like, I always knew. Um, and that kind of stuck with me because I, I think it requires like a massive ego to really chase after some of the stuff that, you know, co-founding like your founder CEO type people do. Um, like you, you said, I think maybe it was before we got on, like, it's like eating glass, like all day long. It's like, why, why would you do it? Um, I think I always had this mindset, like I knew I could do it. I had already, I had already had a taste at that point of what it's like to make immense amount of some money on a daily basis. Um, so I, I will, I don't think I would be that surprised. I, I, I'd be like, yeah, that's right on track. <laughs> Keep going. Don't give up now. <laughs> you're, you're getting there. Awesome. I love that. And yeah, I think, I think you can you paraphrase it correctly. Uh, I, I love that quote from Buffett as well. Like, I think he's been the single biggest influencer in my life over the last uh, years or so. And yeah, I think, I think he said, I always knew I was going to be rich and Mm -hmm. yeah, like that hint of arrogance Mm -hmm. and ego, but also the conviction and certainty. Mm -hmm. 
And so as we kind of wrap up this interview, is there anything that we didn't touch upon that you kind of wish that we might have, um, that you might want to leave the audience with? Or if we kind of covered most things, that's okay too. No, those are those are great topics. I'm I'm pumped that I got to put in my diversity opinions. That's the first time on a podcast, and your PR person's probably going to call you and force you to edit it out. <laughs> I hope it lands well. It's a it's a it's an idea around trying to be a bit more provocative with a with a commonly discussed topic. And I absolutely understand that you know people uh, will say like. I do like hanging out with people that are not like me. And I'm like, of course, like I like hanging out with people that are not like me as well. <laughs> the point is just to, to, to you know, just to start, start a conversation and, and to, uh, to, to think about checking our own biases and, and making sure that everyone uh, has the opportunity to feel included and feel like the people that they're with uh, to a certain degree. Oh, yeah. And I think, I think it'll work well with my audience as well, where like I've written essays on how I think the current definition of diversity is very surface level and what we actually probably want is diversity of thought and actually substance instead of content like mm-hmm. skin color skin color but i could find another asian dude who thinks exactly like me we're not very diverse then or i could find a caucasian guy who thinks exactly like me we're not very diverse then mm-hmm. it's people who actually can think completely differently mm-hmm. and that can just be from experience etc but eric this was awesome um i really enjoyed our chat and thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us Yeah, thank you. It was fun. All right. Take care. All right. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I hope the story was inspiring to you. Hopefully, it also helped you expand your perspectives. Hopefully, it also made you question the default path that you might have been going on or the default beliefs you might have had. And maybe now it'll make you even think about doing something about it, doing something different, maybe challenging yourself being courageous who knows but regardless i'm really happy that you took some time out of your day to listen to this fantastic story with my guest and if you would like to somehow in some way contribute and help support the podcast and maybe even just be part of the community that i'm trying to build with the greater omd ventures platform really think about being a stakeholder in the platform and the quick way to do that is to Go to my website, oldmandan.com, and go to the stakeholders page. I believe it's oldmandan.com slash stakeholder. And the link is also down below. And that's how you can figure out how you can subscribe, follow to get more updates on the free content. But at the same time, also donate. And donate by actually just buying me a coffee. That's just how I put it. And you can buy me a coffee a month, coffee a week, or coffee every day of the year. And think about it as the way that if you wanted to chat with me you might just bring me out for coffee and buy me a coffee or if you wanted to bring one of my guests out to chat you might buy them a coffee so i'm just think of it as i'm the service that's doing that for you so you can just pay me in coffees <laughs> don't worry uh everything will still be free it's just it would just really help if you would like to show your support this way so that i can use the coffee money to buy myself actual coffees and also to buy my guests actual coffees at and use the leftover money to actually grow the platform as well as even keep it operationally alive as well because it all this isn't really free and it does take a lot of time to build it as well as operate it and hopefully grow it further so your support would be amazing if you would like to contribute and so yeah just check out the website 
go to the stakeholders page and read the different kind of benefits you might even get as a stakeholder. All right, thank you.